baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason. We're going to be doing, well, at least the plan is to be doing at least 52 podcasts a year from January to December, talking baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this in the Sully Baseball Studio in Pasadena, California, overlooking the historic Rose Bowl on this day, May 26th. 2017. Now, I am speaking in my normal podcasting voice, but let me just tell you something. My wife is currently in the room with me, and she is curled up with a blanket, with her eyes shut, wanting to take a nap. At least, I'm going to say 46 times, I offered to record this podcast somewhere other than a room where she's trying to sleep. Because I could think of fewer things that are, you know, would be, I guess, more destructive to a nap than your pal Sully talking baseball now for a longer format. I mean, it's no longer the 20 minute daily show. That this is. Oh, it's not? No, you just, I mean, that times I told you that it's no longer a 20 minute program. I'm not that interested, sir. I know you're not that interested. You're only my wife. And, by the way, uh, if you enjoy my wife's appearances on the podcast, uh, go check out the podcast where she is on mic called Real Crime Profile, a Wondery XG production produced by your pal Sully. Now, I'm going to continue doing this podcast because she told me to do this here, and, you know, I, I can think of no better way to ruin my wife's nap than to be doing this. And, and you know, last week was a bit of a catastrophe, you know. I'm doing this weekly version of the podcast now. And I, I recorded what I thought was a pretty good podcast, and it was destroyed. It doesn't exist anymore. I've looked for it. And I'm going to talk about some of the things that I talked about on that podcast. But do you know what? It's a week later. There are other things. Other things are going on in the world of baseball. And so, you know, basically, I'm going to move on a little bit, uh, except for the fact that I, I do want to bring up the fact that baseball and Facebook are teaming up. Now, the first thing you've got to think of is, how do I get involved in that? Because you know, that's, uh, I don't know, that's right up your pal Sully's, what, what, what word am I looking for? Right up my alley? Right up. Are you asking me? Yeah. What's a good term? Right up your lane. Right, right up, up my lane. It's in my wheelhouse. They run from base to base. What's that called? Where, what? Where, where they run? It's the base path. Yeah. It's right along the base path. I'm not running outside the base path because I've been saying this. I am a fan, a big fan. Perhaps you figured this out of the of social media. I'm a big fan of understanding that that's where eyeballs are. That's where fans are watching games. That's where fans are, are, are communicating with each other. Hell, I'm, I'm guessing, if you're listening to me now, that you found me out, you've discovered this podcast through Twitter, through Facebook, through something like that. And the fact of the matter is, baseball has been able to survive over the generations once they embrace the 
method of communication of the time. I, I know I'm a broken record about this, but it's, it's simple to understand. When newspapers were king, baseball mainly was something you read about in the newspapers. That's the golden age of baseball writing. Then radio came along, and teams were like, oh, we can't put our games on the radio, until a few teams did, and they made more money than they could ever dream of. But don't put them on TV until a few teams did, and then they became the teams that made all the money. Well, don't put them on cable. Boom. Don't stream them. Boom. Now, put it on social media. Hockey was putting some of their playoff games on my Twitter feed. And do you know what? I watched some hockey. I don't know a lot about hockey. If a hockey game is on, I'll watch it. But I don't normally seek hockey. But here's the thing. They shoved it in front of my face. Twitter was like, here, watch hockey. All right, it's there. I'm fine, I'll watch it. It was was a good game. Well, baseball is starting to learn, as we started to see a few of those games were were, uh, streamed on Twitter. The Reds versus the Rockies, okay, not exactly a marquee matchup, but maybe they're dipping their toe into it. And baseball and Facebook are going to figure out a way to make this work. And streaming games on Facebook, which is the way it should be. I I spend more time on Facebook than sitting down on my couch watching television. And what game is more conducive for conversation for the back and forth that happens when you're on Facebook and you're interacting with somebody. There's downtime in baseball. That's one of the things I like about baseball. That you can have the conversations. That you can kind of predict things that are going on. You could go on these wild tangent stories. Baseball announcers, the best ones, are a combination of people who describe the events and create an atmosphere of you're watching the game with a friend. It's a thing that Vince Scully would say. If you're just joining us, pull up a chair. I love Phil Rizzuto. And let me tell you, the, the, the hummingbird that just went past this window did better baseball analysis than Phil Rizzuto. But that's not why you listen to him. You like that he was going to tell some crazy story about buying a cannoli or going some weird tangent. You know, I've grown to like Susan Waldman and John Sterling when it's a blowout game with the Yankees, because at some point they're going to be bored of the game and start talking about when they saw Camelot on Broadway or when someone they knew who was on a production of Pippin. Because that's what it's like when you hang out with a friend who talks baseball. That's what I'm trying to simulate with this podcast. I'm trying to simulate that you're my friend and if you're listening to me, you're, you're, you're my friend. You're not necessarily invited to my house. But you're my friend, and I'm going to be talking baseball with you a lot. That's that's the concept. And Facebook is how we interact with a lot of people. Don't talk to oh, that's so terrible, we're doing that on Facebook now. No, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. You interact with people. You talk to people you wouldn't normally talk to. You have combinations of conversations with people you wouldn't normally have. And you're doing that during a baseball It's the closest thing we're going to have to sitting in the stands instead of the isolated experience that you would have watching the game by yourself. 
I mean, I, I mean, I've all to me this is an ideal way to watch baseball. It used to be when I'd be watching a game, like in my apartment in New York for all those years, and unless I had a friend of mine over, unless I had a Rich Duncan or Rob Paravonian or Dan Cronin or Liam McEnany, some of these people who have been guests on the podcast before, hanging out at my apartment, if there was a great catch made, a great hit made, a great home run, I would reach for my phone and call somebody. In fact, that was a early moment of tension in my marriage was the calls at 11.30 at night from someone like the comedian Eddie Pepitone saying, hey, did you see that home run? Buddy, we're asleep. But having that interaction during a game, you see that already happening on Twitter. During the game, see the Twitter feeds. On Facebook, see the Facebook feeds. Well, let's combine them. Let's skip the middleman. Put the screen on there and let's talk. Let's go. Let's type. This is going to be one of those things that we look at 10, 15 years from now and say, how did we used to watch baseball without it being streaming on our social media? I swear that's going to be the case. Because when there's a seismic change like this, I think the two biggest changes made in the last, I don't know, the last few decades, one has been the advent of Baseball Tonight and ESPN, where there's a daily recap of all the games and then the, the several national games on ESPN. That changed the game of how we followed the baseball. But then... What was it, in 2003, 2004, whichever year it was, streaming the games on MLB.com. And I see, in my apartment, I would have the radio broadcasts of the game going on. It changed how I followed the game. I listened to the Red Sox every day from New York, and if I wanted to, I'd listen to Montreal in French. And I look back and say, how did I used to follow the Red Sox? when I wasn't in Boston without ESPN Baseball Tonight, without MLB.com. I I swear we are going to be in a position 10, 15 years from now. We're like, how did we used to watch games when they weren't on social media? And you know what? There'll still be games on television. Do you know how I know that? There's still games on the radio. There's still writers writing columns about baseball. You can still see it live. It doesn't take away from the experience. It adds to the experience. I watched the Penguins versus the Ottawa Senators, I think it was, on some game that was thrown in front of my face on Twitter. And it was was an exciting hockey game. And I would probably watch Green Lantern 2 before I would have watched a hockey game that night, but I wound up watching it. And maybe, just maybe, the experience, I'm starting to sound like Daffy Duck here for a second, but maybe the experience of watching a game when you're not expecting to be watching a game. Maybe the moment where you're like, hey, maybe I'm not, I didn't think I was in the mood for baseball, but maybe this game's going on and there's a fun conversation that's happening. 
Maybe, just maybe, that's where you're going to find new fans. You know, where, they, where they're sitting. They're tearing down a building in our town here in Southern California. And it was a blockbuster video. It used to be a blockbuster video. And now it's an empty shell and it's being torn down. And not far up the street was a radio shack. Except it's not there anymore. I think it's a, a cake store. And I was just thinking that it wasn't that long ago that Radio Shack was where you went for electronics. And Blockbuster was the gatekeepers of home entertainment of all kinds. Whether it's you know, video or video games or whatever it was. They were the gatekeepers. And now, they're both gone. Because habits change. Because how we consume media and how we get our media changes. They didn't adapt. Baseball has to adapt. You could be, I mean, there was a period of time, the owner of the Marlins were the president of Blockbuster Video when they won the World Series in 1997. There was a period where Blockbuster was just they were omnipresent, they were like Starbucks, and if you were a movie, you had to kowtow to Blockbuster, because that's the only way anyone was ever going to see your product. But times change, and how we consume media changes. And they didn't survive. Baseball can survive. And you're starting to see the stuff that I've been screaming about the last few years Coming to fruition. Now, of course, I would have cannonballed right into it. They're going to dip their toe into it. But it's not going to be long before NBC, CBS, ABC, all the networks are going to be uh, are going to be like blockbuster video. Then we're going to get to the point where you want to watch baseball, you just type up baseball. It's not going to be on Fox or anything like that. And you'll be able to use... You know, our media will be consumed on Amazon, on Facebook, on Twitter, and all these different places. And that's a good thing. Baseball is a pastime, yes, but it is a pastime where it should not be enjoyed in solitude. Now, I've watched and listened to many, many games myself. But my instinct is always to say, oh, man, I wish insert baseball fan's name here, was here watching it with me now. And now you can once they figure it out and work out the kinks. And I swear, I'm going to be doing some form of solid baseball at one point or another and we'll be saying, how did we, how did we live without this? How do we live without this? Um, let's talk a little baseball, shall we? Because I, I wanted to say something here. And I'm not saying anything that is, uh, I don't know, I'm not breaking new ground with this statement here. Uh, but I, I'm not a big believer in getting people fired. I'm not. I'm, I'm really not. But some people should be fired. And, uh, and it's for an organization whose team made the playoffs in 2014 and an organization that's that they're not like out of it right now. It's not like you know. There's some teams at this early point just are like, okay, it, it's not happening for you this year. It is not happening. It's not going to happen in Philadelphia. 
It's not going to happen in Miami. You know, it's not going to happen in San Diego. Sorry, I know it's relatively early in the season. It's not happening. And the team I'm pointing to is in second place right now. And how are they doing in the wild card chase? They are two games back of the wild card chase. So what are you talking about, Sully? Why are you mad? Why are you so mad at the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? Why am I so mad at Mike Sosha, at Billy Epler, at Mike LaCasa, the farm director, Matt Swanson, the scouting director? Why am I so mad at them? Well, first of all, there was a power play done where they sided with Sosha over their general manager. So this is Sosha's team now. This is all Sosha. Now, Sosha's had a wonderful career as a manager. But how many years has he been the manager of your Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim? This is his 18th year. His 18th year. Now, his first 10 years as the manager of the Angels were spectacular. World Series appearance, and let's count them. Other than the, and then after the 2002 World Series, one, two, three, four, five more division titles. He was in the playoffs for six of his first 10 years as the manager of the Angels for a team that did not win a single postseason series before his arrival. Boom. Changed the culture, changed everything there, and there you go. This decade, they've been in the postseason once. They got swept by the Royals, and I've talked about this before. And along the way, they've had losing records in 2010. They had a losing record in 2013. They had a losing record in 2016. And most years, eh, they've been in the mid, mid to high 80s, but nothing spectacular. And since 2012... They've had an 89-win season, a losing record in 2013, a losing record last year, and this year, thorough mediocrity, 25-25. and 25. Why am I so mad at them? I'm so mad at them because they play in the American League. The American League is, by every definition, mediocre. I mean, the teams you have in first place now, the, you know, the Astros got off that great start, and they have the best record. Yankees are 10 games above 500 as of this recording. And then you have, you know, the Minnesota Twins got off this great start and everything like that. All the teams I just mentioned who are at the top have serious flaws in their team and are one mild losing streak to coming back to earth. And it's a, there is no, I mean, Cleveland is, I said, the closest thing to a super team, and they're hovering around 500 right now. And then they're not a super time. They're just a really talented team that got off to a really good, you know, really uh, uh, you know, sluggish start. But they're only two games back. Everything is mediocre in the American League. Now, do I think the Angels are going to do piddly-poo? No, actually, I don't. They're eight games behind the Rangers right now. Or the, uh, the Astros, sorry. And, you know, they've had a ton of injuries so far. Tyler Skaggs, Alex Mayer, Uniel Escobar. Um, you know, they've had a bunch of injuries on their squad. Here's the thing. In the middle of their lineup, they have, in his prime, who's going to, I mean, he should be the MVP again. Mike Trout. 
I mean, I mean, this isn't a sabermetric situation. You know, your pal Sully. I don't understand how they calculate war. I'm not even going to mention war. Oh, yeah. If you if you dig war, and I'm not, and I don't really know anything. As of this, he's a three point three war. I don't know really what that means. Okay. You like homers? He's got homers. You like runs bad in? He's driven in thirty five for a team that can't hit. Do you like batting average? I'm just going to give you the the traditional stats. You like the batting average? He's batting three forty four. You like the slugging? He's slugging seven fifty three seven. His OPS is 1.214. There's nothing he is doing wrong. He is putting together a career that, I mean, uh, Griffey is the closest thing I'll say, but he leads the league. He leads the league in walks. He leads the league in homers. He leads the league in batting average. He leads the league in on-base percentage. He leads the league in slugging. He leads the league in OPS. He leads the league in OPS+. plus. He leads the league in total bases. He leads the league, of course, in intentional walks. Why would you pitch to him? What advantage is there to pitch to Mike Trout? When you take a look around, and who's, who's in the behind him here? Cole Calhoun, off to a terrible start. Albert Pujols, yeah, I mean... It's, yeah, he's not Pujols anymore. Cameron Mabin, eh. Uh, Danny Espinosa, yikes. Martin Maldonado, really? Ben Revere, what? Luis Valbuena, DFA. Jeffrey Marte, whose name is spelled just as incorrectly as anyone could spell a name. J-E-F-R-Y, really? Were they suddenly a telegraph? He stinks. Everyone on his team stinks, except the best player in baseball. And for that reason, and this is not like he's caught him by surprise. This is this is year, the complete uh, year. What six of him? One, two, three, four. Yeah, this is six full season. I'm not going to count his cup of coffee he had in 2011. This is year six of him on the squad. The coup d'etat over the general manager took place a few years ago. And you can rebuild a team relatively quickly. Mike Trout is signed through 2020. So they have all of this year and then three more seasons. Three more seasons and then... 28-year-old Mike Trout will become a free agent. And he will go out as a free agent and ask for all the money. His agent says, how much money would you like? All of it. Remember that big pile of money that the Joker set on fire in the Dark Knight? That's going to be his daily salary. And do you know what? Someone will pay it. Do you know why? I'm at BaseballReference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth. I'm looking at his site, and it's all black and in italics, which means he's leading the league in everything. They're inventing stats for him. He's leading the league in trout. And after leading the league in trout, they've had a few years to put together what they need with this team. What they need 
is a adequate lineup around him. Not even superstars. Adequate. And decent pitching. Because Houston shouldn't be ahead by eight games before Memorial Day. Texas should not be working on back-to-back titles. And why the heck are some teams able to pick up aces? We've seen David Price. David Price, in 2013, pitched in the postseason for the Rays. In 2014, he pitched in the postseason for the Tigers. In 2015, he pitched in the postseason for Toronto. In 2016, he pitched in the postseason for Boston. Chris Sale has shifted teams. Uh, Zach Grinke has shifted teams. We've seen high-quality pitchers change their address. And the Angels are sitting with a team whose starting pitching is eh, and their lineup is awful outside of the best player in baseball. You have been given... now. We've seen this before in one instance. This is like what happened with, I mean, I guess you can take a look at someone like Dale Murphy when he was playing for the Braves, but Murphy was not the player that Trout is. I mean, maybe you could point to, like, in in another sport, like when the Cavaliers, the first time around LeBron was on the Cavaliers, they didn't put a team around him, and he had to go to Miami to learn how to be a champion, and he came back as new anointed. I mean, what are they going to do? You know, they put Los Angeles on the name Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim because they want to be a big market team. They don't want to have the stigma of being a small market, that being Anaheim. But here's the problem. When you're a big market and the gods have placed upon your mantle Mike Trout, Your lone job as a scout director, your lone job as a general manager, your lone job as a manager is to put the team around Trout. Because you're not going to get another player like him. There are no other players like him. Not not currently cashing a check and on a 40-man roster anywhere. And the fact that they're going to now have, I mean, Unless things, unless they skyrocket soon, this will be three years since their lone postseason appearance with Trout. Three. 2014. And they'll blow it. I mean, they, they blew it into the postseason the last two years. And unless they turn things around, we are at the first checkpoint. Now, I'm going to do a special makeup podcast for Memorial Day, but I've always said the first checkpoint of the season is Memorial Day. Now, the Angels have to take a good long look at the mirror and realize that they have to do one of two things. They either have to totally go for it, just totally whoever's available, put it together, because you get into the postseason of the American League, you have a decent chance. Or they have to trade away everyone on their major league roster not named Mike Trout and hope that you slap something together. But you know what? I don't trust the team right now. And the team, I don't mean the 
players on the field. I don't trust them because their stats stink. I don't trust the people who I mentioned before. I don't trust Mike Sosha as the manager. I know it was 18 years, and I was putting up a, a resume that was looking like it was going to be Cooperstown bound. Maybe it's not working anymore. You know, most managers in the history of baseball don't last as long as Sosha. Maybe they need a new direction. Maybe Billy Epler and Matt Swanson and Mike LaCasa and everyone involved with the team have to take a good long look in the mirror. And if you're the if I'm the team, if I'm running the team, if I'm Artie Moreno, and I'm not, and I've had harsh words about Artie Moreno, this is one of the biggest blunders, I think, in the history of baseball, if they don't put a good team around Mike Trout. This is like watching those old Roger Corman films. Those those garbage films that Roger Corman would make like in an afternoon. They would just slap together and be awful. And one of the cast members in, in almost in a, a whole bunch of these old crappy black and white films from the 1960s is a young Jack Nicholson who went on to be one of our greatest movie stars. Starred in some... if. If One Flew of the Cuckoo's Dust isn't my favorite movie, then it's right up there. The Shining, Terms of Endearment, Batman, list all your favorite Jack Nicholson films. Five Easy Pieces, Easy Rider, Chinatown, Last Detail. The guy behind all that who won all the Oscars and did all this stuff was languishing in crappy Roger Corman films. That's Mike Trout. Which means... They have to do something. Because 2020 is going to come before you know it. You don't believe me? That 2014 series that they lost to Kansas City doesn't seem that long ago, does it? But it was. And you can blink, look up, and next thing you know, oh, Trout's a free agent? Oh, I, I wonder if there'll be any interest. I wonder if the Red Sox or Yankees or Dodgers or Giants or hell, the Phillies. He's from near Philly. Didn't he grow up a Philly fan? Wouldn't that be the coolest thing to happen in the history of Phillydom since the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the release of Rocky IV? Yeah. You have to make Trout and the Angels be so intertwined that him leaving the team would be as insane as Derek Jeter signing with the Pirates, which wasn't even an issue. And you're going to have to do something more than money, because even though he will command all of the money, he'll also want to, I don't know, play in October, more than three games, if they blow it this year, I'm sorry, they have to clean house and bring in a new manager, new GM, and a new scouting director and say, all right, your job, we've got Trout for the next few years. Put a great team around him. Let's go. Let's go. I don't even like the Angels, and I want them to win because I want to see Trout on the biggest stage. And... Pretty soon he will be statistically the greatest angel of all time. So come on. 
You know, I mean, look at there, there's so many other teams in the American League that I'd rather see win than the Angels, just because I, I don't like the team running them and everything like that. But you can't be a baseball fan and not want to see him on the highest stage. We haven't had the Mike Trout game yet, and I, and what year is he in? I mean, is what we said he was in the seventh eighth year of his career. The Mike Trout game, the signature moment. Hasn't happened yet. And that stinks. With a capital stinks. Uh, before I get into the the last part where I'm going to be talking a little more about the the how I'm going to be setting up the new podcast, you know, when, when I rechristen the podcast, uh, I'm going to continue doing the series of the teams that should have won. Uh, and... I've already done the Angels a little while ago, so let's let's pick another team right now. I'm going to go with the Pirates. And the Pirates is an interesting one to do uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, I've said this before, and, and those of you who have been following the podcast, you know that my thoughts on this, that if all things were different, you know, and, and all things being equal, I probably would have been a Pirate fan. First World Series I ever watched was the 1979 series where they beat the Baltimore Orioles. And I also historically have had, over the years, I've just found myself reading about pirate teams. You know, the team from 1925, Pie Trainer is a very interesting figure in baseball history. Uh, the endless fascination of Roberto Clemente, the team from the 70s, of course. And also, I'm a huge Barry Bonds fan, and I became a Barry Bonds fan based upon his time with the Pittsburgh Pirates and those great teams with Jim Leyland. So, I have a strong affection for this team. And when they went on their 20-year wandering through the desert, unable to put together a single winning season during that time, I still cheered for them. I still wanted to see them do well. And I, when they became good again, I was thrilled. I wanted to see them go far. And I absolutely believe that in 2015, if they hadn't run in to Jake Arrieta, I absolutely believe the team in 2015 would have gone to the World Series. Instead, they're one and done because they lost the, the, the wild card game to Arietta. The team went 98-64, that team. I think by the end of the year, they were playing better than any other National League team. They faced Arietta and lost that one game, and boom, that was it. I think they would have beaten St. Louis. I think they would have beaten the Mets. Would they have beaten Kansas City? I don't know the answer to that, neither do you, but it would have been a great World Series. But I think the 2015 Pirates, that would have been the team to win the World Series, and it would have been the great finale of the all these terrible years they had where they couldn't win, they blew the number one pick overall, and blah, 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 blah. They would have been the 2015 World Series champions, or at least the National League champions. But that's not the team I'm picking. That's not the team I'm picking for the team that should have won. Nor am I picking the team in 1972, a team that I've read a lot about for this writing project I'm doing, which was Roberto Clemente's final year, where they got to the ninth inning, the bottom of the ninth inning of the final game of the National League Championship Series with a lead. 
and they were the defending world champions. And we know that Roberto Clemente died in a plane crash in that offseason, so that would have been his final year, the last year of Clemente being a champion. But we didn't know that at the time. I'm not going to pick that either. I am going to pick one of the Jim Leland teams, one of the Barry Bonds teams. Now, the easy pick to do is, of course, 1992, the Francisco Cabrera hit, which was, I think, the moment, the greatest moment in Atlanta Braves history other than the Henry Aaron Homer in breaking Babe Ruth's record. But also, it was it devastated the Pirates organization for, for decades. They couldn't put together a winning team for decades. A generation came without experiencing, forget a championship, uh, a break-even year with the specter of Francisco Cabrera hanging over their head. That's not the year I'm going to pick. Nor am I going to pick 1991, where they lost to the Braves in, game se in seven games again. Uh, and that was an underrated series. There was a lot of tight games in that. And the, the Pirates were totally shut out at home the final two games. And they had the tying run at third and the pennant-winning run at the plate in the sixth game. And Van Slyke hit a deep drive that went foul. If it didn't hook foul, if it stayed fair, the Pirates would have gone to the World Series. But that's not the team I'm picking either. The team I'm picking is the first one, the first Jim Leland team to make it to the postseason in 1990. Now, I think that if that team had went to the World Series, they would have played the A's. The A's wound up getting swept by the Reds. I don't know if this Pirates team would have beaten the A's, but it would have been the best scenario in terms of the team that should have won. It would have been the first time the city of Pittsburgh saw a baseball postseason since the We Are Family champion Pirate team of 1979. And this was a team that won 95 games and saw Bonds break out. If you only think of Bonds as a roided-up, juiced guy, you, you didn't see him at his best. You didn't see him when he was a lean, all-around player, and this year he hit 33 home runs. He batted 301. His, his OPS was 970. Not only did he drive in 114 runs and walk 93 times, he stole 52 bases as well and kept his strikeout total in double digits. He won the MVP that year, and he just was, and people are, oh, it's, it's either between Bonds or Bonilla. Bonilla hit home runs. Bonilla drove in runs. He, he was, nobody was what Barry Bonds was. And on that team, you had Bonds and Bonilla. You had Van Slyke. You had Sid Breen, Breen who wound up going to the Braves and sliding in on the Francisco Cabrera hit. You had Jeff King. You had Jay Bell. You had Wally Backman somehow was on that team. You had the, the wonderful catching duo of Don Slott and Mike Lavalier. You had the Cy Young season, 22 wins from Doug Drabeck. And you had a slew of other players like Randy Tomlin and Neil Heaton and Bob Walk and John Smiley who just and Zane Smith who just sort of they cobbled together their pitching staff with all these wonderful pitchers and then you take a look at a, a manager, Jim Leland, who 
did not, at least at the time, adhere to the tyranny of the save, always going to the same guy for, for you know, to lock up the game. Uh, Bill Landrum had the most saves with 13, but you had Patterson with five, Kipper with three, Belinda with eight, Ruskin with two, Ted Power with seven. It just went to guys, whoever was the best person to get the save and, and, and notch it down. And they played Cincinnati in a really, really hard-fought championship series. All the Leland series were hard-fought and down to the wire. And this particular year, the Pirates lost in six. Six hard-fought games. Now, why am I picking this year? Why am I picking 90 instead of 91 or 92? Well, it's kind of related to one of the people I've been talking about in this podcast, and that would, of course, be Mike Sosha, where his entire legacy has been helped that his first time in the postseason in 2002, the Angels won it all. They won the World Series. And it made everything that came after that, I don't want to say gravy, but there wasn't the stigma of, uh, they never won the big one, they never won the big one. Right out of the gate, boom, won the big one. And won in front of Barry Bonds and the Giants, no less. But this Pirate team won in 1990. Think about what would have happened afterwards. The big thing that happened after 1991 is they lost Bonilla, who signed his Bananas contract with the New York Mets. And after 1992, they lost virtually everybody, including Bonds and Drabeck and John Smiley and a bunch of other players. So within a few years, the entire Pirate team was gutted. Imagine if they won in 1990. If they got past Cincinnati and like what Cincinnati did to Oakland, stunned them in the World Series. You would have gone into 1991 with the exception of Sid Bream, every other player team, every other member of the team still intact. You would have had another full year of Bonds, Vance, Lyke, and Bonilla as the outfield and doing so knowing that they're the defending champs. And even if you lose Bonilla, the idea of you go have those final years with Barry Bonds, those years where you knew he was going to go and walk, and I don't mean Bob walk, but he was going to walk to whomever was going to give him the big piles of money. That if you win that first championship, said, yeah, we got together for the next couple of years, and they get back into the postseason, maybe a team that's the defending world champion has a little more, I don't know, swagger is the right word, but maybe they come up big in those big games. Maybe, just maybe, the Pirates go on, and buoyed by the, you know, the feeling of, oh, we're the world champs. We can get it done. And then you take a look at what happened in the world, in the playoff series against Atlanta in 91 and 92, where an extra run here, an extra run there would have been the difference between going to the World Series and playing golf. Maybe the defending world champion does, but you go through with just the tension gone. Yeah, we won it all. We're going to try to do it two more times. And there isn't that lost feeling that we got the best player in baseball and couldn't win the title with him. I guess I'm tying Bonds in together with Trout. And I think there's a reason for doing so. 
I look at that pirate team, if that specific pirate team had won, and they'd have two more legit shots to adding a second championship for that team, of which even if they don't, say, well, at least we got that first one under our belt. Man, I like that pirate team a lot. Jose Lean, John Cangelosi, R.J. Reynolds, you know, Orlando Merced, a lot of players who became part of pirate lore over the next couple of years. Give them that ring early. Who knows how it unfolds? And who knows how Bonds reacts? Maybe he stays. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe Benia stays. Maybe he doesn't. But you take out the notion of, well, we've never won. Get that out of the way early and take two more cracks out of making it multiple. Ah, the agony of being the team that should have won, the 1990 Pirates. Well, folks, I am uh, doing some research on how to reformat the podcast. Uh, it is in all probability going to be a participation. You know, kind of like how I was saying we do with, with Facebook, how we interact at real time and everything like that. There's going to be an element of that. There's going to be an element of interacting with me live or I'm going to have some sort of a way to leave phone messages. I'm going to have some way to be able to have people call in either live or leaving, you know, leaving questions. I'll be doing more Twitter stuff. There'll be a way to make it more interactive because baseball thrives on interactivity and talking with the person next to you. And maybe that's what I'm going to try to do. On a weekly podcast, I'm going to call Sully Baseball Live. And it will be a new RSS feed and everything like that. Because we're going to start fresh. Now, I'm probably going to keep this RSS feed. And who knows? Maybe to just keep it up to date, I'll post an old episode from time to time just to jolt in to see who's still sitting out there. But I'm also going to be doing a Patreon page. And the Patreon page is probably going to lead to additional materials. So there's probably going to be some video projects that I do. There's maybe some additional video blogs and video uh, podcasts that I wind up doing that I've done from time to time. Well, maybe that'll be extra content for the Patreon users because your pal Sully wouldn't mind making at least $7.42 on this damn thing. So, hey, sorry last week's podcast was a bit of a catastrophe, but them's the breaks, and maybe it's a sign that Sully Baseball needs to have a big shakeup, kind of like what is going to has to happen in Anaheim. Uh, I'm going to do another uh, Sully Baseball podcast uh, after Memorial Day weekend where we're going to, you know, take stock in what's happening as we reach the first checkpoint of the season and I take a look at who should be thinking about making whatever changes to win now, and what teams should be tearing it to the ground. So go to sullybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. My wife has fallen asleep, but my kids keep showing up while I'm trying to record. I was looking for a video camera. Okay, fine. I'm almost, I'm, I'm actually wrapping up. So why don't you come here? This is my son, Maddie. So, um... Sorry. So you go to sullybaseball.com. You like me on Facebook, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. 
music by Ted Tiger Patrick Lewis. I may have said all that. So this has been the Celebrious with Daily Podcast. I'm dropping today, May 26, 2017. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Maddie, what can people call me? Please call them Sully people. Call me Sully people. <laughs>